Hey everyone, welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today's episode is presented by AeroSeal. AeroSeal's turnkey suite of duct sealing and HVAC efficiency energy conservation measures provide three to five year paybacks and are installed by their in-house mobile operations crew throughout the world. Their proven solutions have been utilized by nearly every NAESCO member, providing over $2 billion in energy savings to date. Excited to have them sponsor not only this episode, but a number of episodes throughout this year. And on today's episode, we sit down with David Kerner. Great conversation with David as we explore his career, his passion for marketing, and we of course get into 75F's mission, vision, and how they're helping their customers and partners today. Uh, Really good stuff there. David provides us with a unique perspective on where he sees the industry heading and really where 75F fits into this overall vision. So be sure to stick around until the end as David discusses his daily non-negotiables, which are a little bit different than uh, some of our other guests that we've had on in the past, a little bit unique. It was a joy to hear his perspective on this question. So we hope you're finding value not only in this episode, but in our podcast. And if you are, we ask you to subscribe, download, and, and hopefully you're sharing this with a friend or colleague. Now, we think you're going to really enjoy this conversation between David and I. So let's drop in. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Building Efficiency Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with David Kerner, who is the VP of Global Marketing with 75F. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad we uh, carved out some time to uh, to make this thing happen. So before we get into uh, to 75F and all the great things that you guys are doing, I think our audience, audience will be curious to find out about your background and kind of where you grew up and then how you got started in your career. So let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting. I grew up outside Los Angeles, fairly liberal enclave near the beach, but from a deeply conservative family. I was able to get into an elite upper class school, but I came from a middle class background, very diverse neighborhood. I also came from a family of engineers, but from an early age, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, was very interested in sales and marketing and making money so that I could spend money as a teenager. So all those ideas kind of came together and uh, I think contributed to this uh, spending a lot of time thinking about why people thought the way they thought and felt the way they felt. And I think probably the defining moment for me and my generation was 9-11, which happened um, right as I was about to head to college. At the time, I was active in some environmental causes, uh, beach cleanup and um, marine biology, kind of things like that. And I think 9-11 as a marketer, as a, as a young marketer, was really interesting because it was a lot different than a lot of the challenges that we see, I believe, in the climate movement today. I think probably within the climate movement, we have a little bit of a marketing problem. And um, that's one of the reasons that I'm interested in joining a clean tech company and getting involved in sustainability. And I think that specifically 9-11 showed people come together for a cause that isn't abstract, isn't unintentional, or there's no guilty bias, something that's united, uniting and not divisive, and something that has a short time horizon and not a long time horizon. And for all those reasons, I think the um, sustainability movement presents a challenge that needs to be solved, uh, that needs better marketing. Um, that needs a lot of committed people and um, all those things appeal to me and that's why I'm here. 
That's cool. All right. So I know we're not going to solve this problem today, but what are one or two <laughs> things that you think like the industry needs to do better from a marketing standpoint? Because our entire audience here, this is this is everybody listening to this is going to be in building efficiency, sustainability at of some course, of course. stage. So what are your thoughts on this? What, what are a couple of things that our industry needs to do to move forward? Yeah, perfect. I like talking about practical solutions. So let's look at 9-11 real close. First of all, um, it's not abstract. We got attacked. So there's no wishful thinking. Abstract problems have sort of three primary attributes. There's a perceptual abstraction. Is this thing happening? There's a cognitive abstraction. How is this happening? And there's an effective abstraction. Is this actually bad for me? Um, climate movement suffers from all three of those things. There are people that question if it's happening, how it's happening, and if it's actually a net positive, if it's even a problem that's worth the economic cost of trying to fix. Um, second, 9-11 was completely intentional and climate is unintentional. There's, uh, there's this um, negative untaxed externality of climate that makes it so difficult for us to unify public support around. There's a guilty bias problem. Um, the uh, the tragedy of 9-11 happened to completely innocent people. And um, there is a huge guilty bias that I'm driving a car uh, with, you know, a gas powered car still, and I'm consuming products off Amazon that are coming in boxes. And I'm as responsible as anyone for what's happening. Finally, it's 9-11 uh, was very unifying. And what we see happening with climate change movement around the world is that it's very divisive. It singles out emitters and um, producers and uh, folks in traditional industries that don't have a, a lot of options, don't have a path to um, to uh, renewable energy in there. You know, we still have a very carbonized grid. So for all those reasons, I think the climate movement has suffered. And there's three ways to direct answer your question. That I think we should do something about it. One is, I believe that we need to stop talking about the hopeless and kind of moral facet of climate change. I don't know what you think about this, but talking about a climate crisis or uh, you know uh, a greenhouse gas emergency is um, the kind of messaging that has. Um, made the sustainability movement, at least in the U.S., more, more polarized, more divided than ever before. If the transition to sustainable renewable energy is the greatest challenge of my generation or of my lifetime, then we're failing at that challenge uh, for the past 20 years, or we've been doing worse and not better. And the messaging about, um, you know, polar bears, uh, losing their ice flows or, um, you know, penguins swimming around hopelessly in the Atlantic or something, that messaging is, um, is not working. It's, it's a message of hopelessness. And instead of talking about climate crisis or moral obligation, we should be talking about the collective opportunity we have as a country to um, come to together and make good business decisions, good financial decisions for future generations. That's one. Two, mm -hmm. nobody wants to leave a burden for future generations. And so instead of talking about for a clean, green planet or for a better future, instead, let's focus on the costs and suffering of those who come after us. That's the the great America of my 
parents and grandparents generation. That's the America that I want to leave behind to my own children. And finally, let's highlight the positive. We don't have to uh, have lists of the highest emitter emitting U.S. businesses, but we can have uh, better government support and more transparency of companies that are taking steps to um, reduce energy consumption in their businesses. We can we can step away from climate credits and the the kind of shell game that is climate credits today and instead focus on highlighting positive stories. Companies that like 75F are making a, a positive impact every day to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and simultaneously save customers money. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, we're, we're seeing that, right? So I, I would uh, 100% yeah. agree with what you're outlining there. And, and we are starting to see that with, you know, the clients that we work with, their clients, corporate clients, the Fortune 1000 organizations that are setting aggressive goals on, you know, decarbonization, reducing greenhouse gases. And here's what we're going to do, like laying out a plan and how they're going to execute on it, I think is a really good next step. So I think what you provided there is a good segue. Let's talk about 75F. Let's say someone listening to this doesn't know who you are yet. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company and, and what you guys are up to today. Sure. 75F uses smart sensors and controls to make commercial buildings more efficient and comfortable. We're the world's most advanced IoT-based building automation system. We're a full-stack solution. We design and manufacture hardware. Think of us as being like a nest for buildings. Um, that's hardware on any existing HVAC equipment and all the way down to a thermostat in your office or a wireless sensor in a zone or space. Those sensors send data up to the cloud, a million data points per 50,000 square feet of space um, flowing to a built-in AI, built-in analytics. And then on the front end, the system is constantly optimizing so we're predictively able to reduce energy consumption in buildings. I think- Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think uh, podcasts like yours highlight, you know, uh, pragmatic solutions to climate folks that are making a difference. And um, this is an example. Uh, 75F and many of your other guests and companies are, uh, are examples of companies that are making a positive impact. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And yeah, we're doing our part to uh, to help share that story and, and tell that story at the marketplace. So, right. so tell us a little bit about the, because uh, again, our audience, you know, we're going to have ESCOs listen to folks working for ESCOs, listen to this, you know, contractors, building automation, you know, system integrator, consultants. Um, who are some of the customers that you guys work with or how, what's the primary go-to-market strategy here? Yeah, we sell through ESCOs. Uh, okay. We're happy to talk to anybody. We'll make it real easy if you reach out and give us a call. Um, but it's, uh, it's contractors, um, controls contractors and system integrators specifically who usually are picking up our product. It's relatively easy to install because it's entirely wireless. This is a, a self-healing, self-identifying long-range wireless mesh network. It's not Zigbee. It's and 900 megahertz. So um, it's very stable. And we've been able to overcome a lot of the obstacles of traditional systems in steel reinforced concrete or water pipes that are found in building retrofit applications. Very complex or noisy environments because we have these edge devices, these IoT devices throughout a building, more nodes can overcome those 
um, interference challenges because the system is always trying to find a least path to the cloud. And where service is interrupted or where Wi-Fi to an entire building goes down, for example, then the system is smart enough to operate in standalone mode. These are these are very intelligent edge devices. Our uh, Hyperstat 75F Hyperstat has two um, ARM uh, microchips, and it's uh, it's a very intelligent standalone device and terminal equipment controller. So all these all these devices are interoperable. They're wireless, and um, we've been able to reach uh, a number of stakeholders in the market, all the way down to building managers and facility managers uh, because the system is so easy to install, manage, and operate. This sounds like a really high-tech play. I mean, everything that you, you laid out there, um, I mean, it sounds like you guys have spent a lot of you know time and, and money and resources in developing this. So now I'm curious, tell us a little bit about the, the history of the company. You know, it, was your technology always at this point or what's been kind of the evolution of the development to get the product to the point that it is today? Because what you outlined there sounds like, all right, this is the goal. This is what we're trying to get to. Was it always that way or you know, how did it start? No, it was always that way. Okay. Um, we are, we've been around for 10 years. I think what we saw is that automation is affecting many industries, but is not affecting buildings. If there was a technology that you can apply to existing cars on the road, existing internal combustion engines on the road, that was going to make them 30 or 50% more efficient. That was going to uh, have a payback period of one and a half years in terms of the overall fuel efficiency and was going to be incredibly easy to install. No programming or customization required because everything is pre-configured or your make and model of automobile. And that would kind of be a no brainer. Um, That would actually completely transform transportation in America. Unfortunately, we don't make that technology, but we do make that technology for buildings, right? We uh, were able to reduce energy consumption from HVAC alone by in some cases up to 72%. We're comfortable saying between 30 and 50% energy savings. And um, we're able to do it simply by redirecting air where it's needed most. Despite all the complexity on the back end, what customers see is within two weeks of install, the system has learned my building. Um, I've set up some basic scheduling. I have alarms and alerts set up the way I want them. And all customers see is a real-time dashboard of what's happening in their building, zone by zone. And they don't really need to mess with or configure anything. There's zero custom programming that's ever required. Very cool. So um, you kind of set the table nicely here. Let's project out into the future. Let's look down the road 5, 10, 15 years from now. You know, where do you see the energy efficiency or building efficiency industry going? And then where do you see 75F fitting in with that vision? We think that all buildings, all commercial buildings in the world, let's say conservatively above 15,000 square feet, will have a... IoT-based building automation system um, in 10 or 15 years. I think that's something that has to happen. The the transition to electric cars requires a energy supply that does not currently exist in the U.S. And our energy infrastructure is um, maxed out, is taxed. 
So despite future planning, we need to find efficiencies and buildings represent a huge opportunity for energy savings. They're the fourth largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions after residential, after transportation and after industrial use. And they're hugely inefficient spaces, as most building owners who pay their energy bill can probably tell you. And simply by using uh, existing equipment more efficiently, we can deliver a tremendous amount of savings and also indoor air quality and comfort improvements for guests and occupants. So it's a win all the way around. We think that all buildings are going to be using these systems in 10 or 15 years. And we think that 75F might just be one of those offerings. In other words, Henry Ford said there was going to be a car in every garage in America. And he was right. It just wasn't a Ford. In our case, there's going to be a system like this in every building. And it probably won't be a 75F system, but that's okay. I think we're all going to win if our buildings are modernized and more comfortable for uh, for occupants and more affordable for building managers. I think that's really interesting. So how much do you think is going to drive this um, as it relates to, I'm just thinking like in New York, for example, they're always one of the, like the leaders when it comes to decarbonization and energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the initiatives weren't getting enacted until the fines, for example, uh, were harsh enough that building owners were like, all right, fine, we'll do this, right? Because now it's going to hurt us enough before the fines didn't matter. And they kept, you know, kicking the can down the road as far as doing energy efficiency upgrades. So I guess what I'm getting at here is the carrot versus the stick. You know, how much do you see of it like uh, incentives and, hey, this is what where we need to go and, and people are getting on board versus like, you got to do this, utilizing the uh, the stick analogy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. As a marketer, I've always thought that it's the stick, that what's required is more government intervention, um, better building standards for both efficiency and indoor air quality, um, policy changes. <laughs> And yet what I'm seeing on the ground is the opposite. It's actually the carrot. I'll give you an example. Um, Home Furniture is a Midwest furniture retailer. They have an 80,000 square foot location. We're saving them 700,000 kilograms of CO2. CO2 is something that's sort of difficult to contextualize, but that's 1,000 hours of airline travel, 10,000 hours of car travel, 100,000 cotton bags, a million plastic bags, 15 million plastic straws. And we're saving that much carbon every single year for as long as the 75F system is installed, which generally speaking, we're assuming is going to operate for at least 10 years. So we save this customer hundreds of thousands of dollars at just one of their locations were installed across their entire portfolio of stores. And this is something that's really tangible. The only carrot is the savings that they're able to see right away. They moved from a, I believe, a 46 Energy Star rating to now they're a 96, which is almost unprecedented in terms of Energy Star uh, scores. And again, they did this without changing the equipment, without a large capital equipment upgrade, without improving their roof, changing their enclosure, adding double pane windows. Instead, all they did was install modern and efficient building controls. So as a company, I would like to say that we're selling like gangbusters in the liberal coasts. 
you know, in New York City and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. But the opposite is true. Um, we're not selling as well in those places as we are in the Midwest, in the red states, and places where there's pragmatic business owners who are making decisions that are best for their company about the energy savings that they could see today. Interesting. No, this is all really good stuff. And I'm sure we could spend uh, a lot of time getting into all the, the nuances, but I want to uh, transition to the last part of the show here, Dave, and, and ask you the last four questions that uh, the same four questions I've asked every guest who comes on the podcast and leading off here, what are your daily non-negotiables? Yeah, I'll tell you what I'm supposed to do. I think I'm supposed to take care of myself, you know, center my mind, do my breath holds, drink my alkaline water, write in my journal, uh, mindfulness and gratitude. Um, but I actually do not do any any of that. My my non-negotiable might be to have no non-negotiables. <laughs> I don't know what the what the deal is with consistent morning practice or where this cult of routine came from. But uh, I'm a big believer that you should probably figure out how you want to feel first. Just engage in activity to promote that feeling. As my uh, just myself, I'm a variety driven person. And I know I need a menu of choices to support the kind of day I want to have. So I try not to force myself to do something because it's going to make me successful. And, uh, you know, I try to avoid this no pain, no gain mindset and instead just ditch the daily routine and, um, you know, get get more negotiable. I only have one life, right? All right. Well, hey, a little bit different direction <laughs> there on that, uh, that answer. But uh, I like it. I like something a little bit different. Um, so what advice would you give to your 22 year old self? Well, uh, you know, one is to hug my grandfather because he's not going to be around as long as you think. That would be a, that'd probably be a big one. After that, um, I'd say uh, that the secret to being a good father, establishing a work-life balance is to find and marry Lindsay Kerner. That's the, that's the secret to life success. 22-year-old David Kerner, go find Lindsay Kerner. That would be my, uh, my life advice. Very, very practical. And what uh, what motivates you? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? We you know, know it's I not really a daily like, routine. So it's not a, it's not that daily routine. No, I, it's not my five mile job. <laughs> I do really like marketing. Um, I'm a bit of a marketing nerd, to be honest. I know I have colleagues that love to fish, love to hunt, love to play golf. I don't do any of those things. I've really never done any of those things. Um, I really like marketing because you work with great people across the company, great customers. I love learning and trying new things. I mean, how does my mail order mattress ever have a chance of competing with that? <laughs> uh, last question here. What do you want your lasting legacy to be? I think a good legacy to have is to be true to, to be true to myself, to, uh, to leave a legacy that, um, I made a positive difference and then I made that positive difference to one person or to a hundred people because I wanted to be a force for good and not because I was trying to convince my family or friends or Facebook followers or some nonsense that I live a life of meeting or have value. I think um, I started my career in fintech and SaaS companies in uh, Silicon Valley. I worked for a fortune 100 here in Minnesota at 3M and Moving to clean tech and climate was less about helping the planet and more about solving that hard problem that I talked about. Um, 
despite all the doom scrolling, all the anxiety about the war or about, um, you know, the war in science or about failures in education and justice or, you know, social damage. I think um, this is uh, a problem that humans as a species are really meant to solve, that we're really good at solving. You know, we created cities and culture, we mastered agriculture and flight, we cured disease, we mapped the human genome, we stood on Everest and on the moon. And I think in my lifetime, we are going to achieve um, sustainable energy, hopefully limitless sustainable energy. And I want to do my small part to help us achieve that. It's a tall task. So I think you're shooting shooting high there so that's good all right well i think that's a perfect way to uh, to close out the uh the episode here so david appreciate the time thanks for being a guest on the building efficiency podcast absolutely anytime thanks all right all right there you have it episode 74 with david kerner i hope everyone enjoyed this episode as much as i did and if you did enjoy it please be sure to subscribe to our channel wherever you enjoy listening to your favorite podcast we hope that you show we hope that you're sharing this with your friends and colleagues as well and one last thing if you have any future guests in mind from the industry please reach out to us we'd love to hear from you loyal listeners until next time i'm jim schaefer and we'll catch you on the next episode